Today we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. The words will also be up on the screen, though I will say and admit that it is a nice sound to hear the ruffling of pages as people turn to the Scriptures. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Father, days come and days go. Years pass. Lord, there is almost nothing in this world that is of permanence. But you tell us in your word that your word stands forever. This is of value. This is of permanence. Your word is what will last forever. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to turn our attention to your divinely inspired word. And that you would help us, me included, to receive with all humility what you have to teach us this morning. That you might correct us that you might encourage us, Lord, that you might help us to understand, that you might help us to apply, that you might even rebuke us, Lord, if that is what we most need in this hour. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Studies continue to show a rapid decline of those who identify as Christians and a steady increase of those who identify as what's been known as or been identified as religious nuns or those who don't have any particular affiliation with any kind of religion. But this isn't entirely new. 
In fact, this was true also during the days of C.S. Lewis. In an essay written in 1946, C.S. Lewis had written that the modern mind has so deviated from a Christian worldview that communicating the gospel effectively is near impossible. There's no belief or even a curiosity about the supernatural, that there is no longer these shared presuppositions that we all once had. He argued that one of the reasons for this growing trend is because of the modern man's preoccupation with practical majors in college and a growing concern for completing in a global economy, that they don't have the time for subjects like philosophy or metaphysics, things that C.S. Lewis would say sort of help us in this connection with eternal realities. Now, if Lewis is right about his interpretation of the times, and if the trend continues to rise with more people identifying as religiously unaffiliated, then a question is, what might then be an effective strategy in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And to this, the teacher of Ecclesiastes may be of some help. Now, while this sermon is not intended to be a sort of a presentation of how to effectively do evangelism in these times, nevertheless, I do think that it's helpful to that end, but that's not primarily the focus this morning. Instead, the passage before us summons us to carefully analyze the secular mind, and it gives us a profound critique of the secular mindset, and it seeks first to ground us on the subject of vanity, or what is vanity. And so the teacher begins by introducing vanity to us. So I had mentioned last week that the book of Ecclesiastes can function as a pretty effective apologetic, as a means of defending the faith, defending the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one reason being because, if you remember from last week, is that the book of Ecclesiastes has very little to no reference to salvific history. It does not point us to the past, to what God has done in the past. It doesn't point us to the Yahweh that saves. It doesn't even emphasize all that much a faith in God. It doesn't mention anything about the people of Israel, even though most likely the one who wrote this book is King Solomon, who was himself an Israelite. But in this way, this is sort of leveling the playing field for the person who is of a secular mindset. It confronts the secular person. It takes what we can perceive with our senses and sort of gets at the idea of let's work at this together. Let's think about eternal realities. Let's think about life after death. Let's think about the subject or the topic of God, but let's all work from the same presuppositions. Let's take the world and what we can perceive about the world. Let us work within the confines or the boundaries of the world and kind of, and sort of see what we can come up with. Now, the secular person is a person who doesn't ascribe or hold to any particular religious expectations. That person could be an atheist that person could also identify as a Christian, but I would argue that there are many Christians in the world who do not actually live their lives according to the expectations of God and therefore making them secular. It is the person that does not live in accordance to the expectations of God 
or for that matter, any religious system. As I said last week, that one of the purposes of the book of Ecclesiastes is to defend the life of faith in God. One person by the name of G.S. Hendry wrote that Koheleth, that is the teacher, writes from concealed premises, and his book is in reality a major work of apologetic. Its apparent worldliness is dictated by its aim. Koheleth, the teacher, is addressing the general public whose view is bounded by the horizon of this world. He meets them on their own ground and proceeds to convict them of its inherent vanity. His book is, in fact, a critique of secularism and of secularized religion. I don't think that necessarily means that the teacher set down from the very beginning to sort of critique the secular mindset by then giving himself to this sort of secular life by indulging in whatever his desires wanted, not withholding anything that his desires wanted, and sort of giving himself to this kind of life that is void of the sacred pursuit of God. Instead, I think this is actually coming from a person who genuinely wanted to pursue this quest to discover what is the meaning of life, who genuinely desired to give himself to the things of the world and see what would come up with because he found everything else unsatisfying and then came to the conclusion that it was all vanity and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God created or wrote the book of Ecclesiastes sort of writing his conclusions about the, kind, about the secular life. It says, the words, the teachings, the wisdom coming from a person who has forsaken the sacred pursuit of God and has totally adopted the secular mindset. And he takes the secular mind to its logical conclusions. He asks the kinds of questions that the secular person should be asking that many people are not willing to ask because they are afraid of discovering what the answers might be. Kohaleth, the teacher, takes the secular mindset to its logical conclusions, discovers the answers to life's most important questions, and he comes to the inevitable conclusion that it is all vanity. It is of no value. It is of no substance. It doesn't mean anything at the end of the day. It is like striving for the wind, trying to grasp the wind, trying to hold on to the wind, but it is impossible to hold on to the wind because it has no substance. In thinking about this word vanity and essentially what it means, another theme that's sort of the opposite or sort of the antithesis to the word vanity is Glory. And we see this very in many places in the scriptures where it's talking about glory, what is glorious, about the glory of God. Now the word glory, and especially in the Old Testament, had this idea or this meaning of weightiness. That to determine the value of something, was, it was to place it on a scale and see how much it weighed. And if it weighed a lot, that would determine its value. So when we talk about God being the most glorious person, we're talking about the weightiness of God, that there is something, that there's nothing that surpasses the weightiness of the glory of God. But that which is vanity or striving of the wind, uh, after the wind essentially has no value because it does not weigh anything. And this is the conclusion that the teacher 
discovers when it comes to the life of the person who is who has does not live according to the expectations of God and does not live in the fear of God. So let's say you were moving to another country, right? That would require a lot of packing. Let's say you go to the airport and you have large suitcases with you. And you go to the person, you get to try to get your tickets to place your luggage on the scale to figure out how much you're going to pay. You tell the person, I'm going to move across the country. I'm going to move into another country. I'm excited. And the person, you hand the luggage to the person. The person takes it with two hands and they lift it up and they almost fall backwards because they're expecting to be super heavy and they discover it's actually really not that heavy. Or maybe they've been working out a whole lot and they're stronger than they think until they put the luggage on the scale and it comes out to zero. The person is wondering, why is this person bringing empty luggage when he's going to another country? That essentially, the person is not paying anything or paying very little because they're only paying for the size or the weight of the luggage and nothing in its content because there's nothing in the content. To the teacher, that's what the secular life is like. It has no substance. It doesn't weigh anything because it doesn't weigh anything. It has no value. The teacher goes on this quest. He comes to the conclusion that the secular life is full of vanity. But then he proceeds to explain how he's come to that conclusion. First, he points to the earth. Verse 4 says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. That conjunction there is intended, I think, to be sort of a colossal stop. A generation goes and a generation comes, but, but the earth remains forever. And these passing generations point to the vanity of all things. Now, while, yes, we rejoice that there are generations that come after us, we rejoice that, there are children, that we have children, and they have children, and their children also have children. But the preacher says, generations just continue to come, they continue to go on and on and on. It goes one generation is replaced by another. And yet, the one thing that seems to remain and see and witness the passing of these generations is the earth. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? telling us that the human soul is far weightier and much more value than the earth itself. And yet, as valuable as the human soul, the human life is, it seems that the earth is even much more, is much more valuable than the human life because the earth is the one that seems to stand forever and not the person, not the people that occupy or inhabit the earth. One life is replaced by another, by another, one generation after another, after another. The point is that nothing lasts forever, according to the teacher. And all this points to the vanity of human life. So that my life will pass, my kids will go on, they will have kids, they will, they will also have kids, and now and on it goes until ultimately the memory of my life 
is forgotten. The teacher says, what a vanity. What meaninglessness. Next, he points to the creation itself. It says, the sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. And the way that it's written sort of, I think, gives this picture of a runner in a marathon. Somebody, or not necessarily a marathon, but it's running circuits on a track, on and on it goes. And he hastens from the finish, from the start line, to get all the way again to that start line, to trying to make laps, trying to finish as quickly as possible. So he continues to run the circuit over and over again, and this is the same with the sun. It rises, it sets. It rises, it sets. On and on it goes, on the same circuit. It hastens, and it gives this idea of it's just, it's weary, of this weariness. It's tiresome, it's exhausting, it's taxing. And this also points to the vanity of all things. It talks about the wind. The wind blows to the south, it goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns following a similar pattern, on and on and on it goes, from left to right, up and down, nothing is different. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember playing video games when I was younger, and there, was one, there were some games where you were like, go to one end of the screen, and then you end up all the way back at the other end of the screen. Right? The, the setting hasn't changed, the context hasn't changed, if you just go through one end of the screen, you just somehow end up on the other side. And that's sort of the idea. On and on it goes from left to right, up and down. You're not ever really getting anywhere. And he talks about the streams. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To this place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Streams also following a similar pattern. The streams go into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. It is never satisfied. It is never essentially accomplishing anything. There is no progress. And this is what the teacher says, that this is essentially what the secular life is like. This is what life apart from God is like. And beyond this, the teacher also points to history. He says in verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You might ask yourself, well, that's not entirely true. We remember things. I remember my past. I remember the past of those I know, of those I love, of friends of mine. We know things that have happened in the past. We know past contributions, we know past inventions, we know people of the past, we have history books to tell us about the past, and that is true, but that is not essentially what the teacher is getting at. What he's saying is that one memory is always replaced by another, one event is always replaced by another, one contribution will always be replaced by another, one new invention will always be replaced by another. Yes, we might remember things of the past, but essentially it doesn't really mean 
for the most part, all that much to us today. He points to the fact that there's always new things, and that itself points to the vanity of all things. That it always has to be something new. What is new today will be old tomorrow. What is done today will essentially go into the past. That nothing stays today. Nothing remains the same. Everything just goes into the history books, and there it stays. There's nothing novel in the sense that something that is life-transforming, something that is life-altering, there's nothing new that ends all new things. Mark Spitz once held 33 world records as a competitive swimmer, and then came along Michael Phelps, who achieved 39 world records, but not more than Johnny Weismuller, who holds 67 world records as a competitive swimmer, and yet most of you probably have never heard of him because he was born in 1904 and died in 1984. Holds the most world records in competitive swimming, and yet nobody talks about him today. And this is the teacher's point. That new things are always replaced by new things. And even if the something that is new in the past is greater than the new things today, it's still forgotten about. People don't talk about those things anymore, or if they do, it's very little. But eventually it will come to a place where nobody talks about them anymore. The teacher is pointing to a repetitive cycle. He's pointing to the cyclical nature of reality, while time... I think we can argue from the scriptures is moving linearly, is moving to a fixed point in time that God has determined, that God, bring, that God will bring all things to a particular end according to his sovereign purposes, according to his providence. And yet our experience as human beings who live in time right now, we perceive time as something that just moves in a circular motion. The sun rises, the sun sets. The wind blows to the south and comes around to the north. The same routines over and over and over again. Everything goes on and on, accomplishing nothing and apparently serving no purpose. And it's for this reason that the teacher says that this is absolutely wearisome, that there's no, there's no words to describe how wearisome this is. Is as weary as the exhausted runner that keeps running laps over and over and over again. There's nothing exciting about it. There's nothing meaningful about it. On and on it goes. Like watching NASCAR. My apologies if you do like NASCAR. There's nothing but weariness. It just continues to go. Nothing substantial to the secular life. That you do the same things in hopes of accomplishing and producing things that ultimately don't accomplish anything at all, but make this life just a much more pleasant experience before you move on to the next. The teacher's trying to get the secular person to see that they have nothing to count on, nothing to put their hope in, nothing to confide in, except the cyclical nature of reality, which the teacher concludes is just utter meaningless. 
utterly meaningless. So we're presented here with a kind of life that is life, that is a life lived apart from the fear of God, that has no relationship with God, that does not have, that does not live according to the expectations of God. But when we consider what God has revealed about himself, through his word, we find that the vanity of life and the vanity of all existence is utterly transformed when we consider what God has truly revealed to us and consider and understand those things that he has revealed to us. So third and lastly, vanity transformed. And so Psalm 19, so we have this sort of this picture of creation, that this is inevitably, this is what the secular person has to conclude with, that ultimately creation itself doesn't point to anything and amounts to anything, that the reality of the cyclical nature of all creation is just a representation of the cyclical nature of the human life apart from God, utterly meaningless. And yet, when we read Psalm 19, sort of a different critique of creation itself, but with the person but coming from the person who lives in the fear of God, it says this, Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The person who lives in the fear of God, who has this relationship with God, notice how he understands and perceives creation. He says that creation itself, the heavens, the skies above, proclaim the handiwork of God and give glory to God. That day to day pours out speech, that night to night reveals knowledge. Knowledge of, of what? Knowledge of the divine creator. He's telling us that all of creation, every single day, is proclaiming something, it's shouting something, it's, it's heralding something that most of the world cannot hear, and that is that it is declaring the glory of God. even when it comes to the rising and setting of the sun, notice how it's described that it is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber or like a strong man that runs his course with joy. All of creation is a beautiful tapestry that reflects the majesty and the magnificence of its divine creator. It's all intended to showcase the fact that there is a God and that He is glorious. Romans 1.19 tells us, For what can be known about God is plain to them, that is, let's say, to the secular person, because God has shown it to the secular person. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
that passage and also Psalm 19 and others like it point to natural theology. That is the theology, the things that we can understand about God from just perceiving the things that are in the world. But that just by looking at all of creation, by seeing the sun rise and the sun set, by feeling the wind in our face, that there are things that we can know about God. That one of the purposes of creation is to reveal the God that is there. But apart from God, when God is left out of the equation, when God is not the foundation of all existence, then all you are left with is a creation that doesn't reveal anything at all. You're left with a creation that is meaningless. In fact, if there's no divine creator, there is no creation, because creation implies that there is a divine creator. And nobody creates something without purpose, without intent, without meaning. But the conclusion of the secular mind is that it's utterly meaningless. Creation itself doesn't point to anything. That all of existence is essentially meaningless. That apart from God, existence is just watching the marathon of the sun over and over and over again. It is no more than the feeling of the wind going around in circles over and over again. That is no more than just streams filling a sea that is never satisfied. And essentially, that kind of life is like pouring a large pitcher of water into an empty glass that never fills. In the end of the day, it's meaningless. But it is when we live our lives in the fear of God, in the knowledge of the God that is there, and live according to his expectations, there's then profound and staggering implications for our lives. The great theme of the secular person, whether he realizes it or not, or accepts it or not, is that there is nothing new under the sun. And while, yes, there are a lot of new things that happen from new inventions, new moments, new experiences, new contributions, new things that we experience, this new stuff, right? But there is nothing, there's nothing novel about these things. There's nothing life-transforming. There's not one new thing to transform and end all new things. The inner cry of the secular person is for something substantial, something much more meaningful, something that is transcendent, something that is permanent, something beyond the stars, something beyond this world, something beyond this universe. And only the Lord has the answer to such a cry. You see, because God has done something staggering, something earth-shattering that has never been done before, that cannot be replicated, and that is His sending His own beloved Son into the world. Jesus, the Son of God, the beloved Son of God, come into the world to take on human flesh, to live as a human being, to experience the things that we experience, to go under trial, to go under temptation, to even suffer and die on a cross and rise again from the dead. While life apart from God, the teacher would say, is a meaningless life, Yet there is actually something meaningful about the secular life. 
something that carries a great deal of weight, something that actually does matter to God, and that is the sin of the secular person. Your sin and my sin matters a great deal to God. Now, some sins are heavier than others, but no sin is light to God. Because every single sin is an offense to God. So God then intends to bring judgment upon every single human being for their sins. But this is why he sent Christ Jesus into the world in order to spare his people from the judgment and wrath of God so that whoever places his faith upon Jesus Christ confesses their sins, repents of their sins, turns their life to Jesus Christ, that they are forgiven of their sins, they receive the mercy and the grace of God, and they are also radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are made completely new. New as in the sense that there's nothing like it. Right? If you are here and you are a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. There is nothing else like that in the entire history of the world, nothing like that right now in the planet, nothing that will ever exist that will be anything like that, radically transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And that new is here to stay. It will never be replaced by something else. Ephesians 4.17 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That word, futility, there in the passage, is very similar to the word vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes. That is, meaninglessness, no substance, no value. That such a mindset inevitably gives itself to callousness, to sensuality, to greediness, to practicing all different kinds of impurity, because ultimately it is alienated from the life of God. That is the secular person. But the person who has been new to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right, that is not your case. Then say you are called to put on the new self. And this new self, it says that it is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That, therefore, tells you that as a new creation to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that your life does matter. And it matters because you have been created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
And that sets us out then to live our lives with purpose. Everything to follow Jesus Christ as a person who has experienced the rebirth, the regeneration that comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith in Christ, everything that you do today matters. It matters a great deal to the Lord. 1 John 2.17 Actually, for some context, I don't want to just read verse 17, but I want to go back a little bit before in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But listen to this, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Two reasons why you should not love the things of the world. One, because it is contrary to God, because it is opposed to God. It is an enemy of God. And the second reason why you should not love the things of the world is because it tells you it is passing away. It is fleeting. It has no substance. It has no eternal significance. It has no value. But the one who does the will of God will abide forever. The things that are permanent, the things that are transcendent, the things that will last forever, those are the things that we ought to set our attention to. We will last forever as long as we do the will of God. This cry of permanence and transcendence is answered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is an invitation to a place that is beyond this world, beyond the sun, the moon, and the stars, to a place that even rocket ships could ever, could ever, ever reach. And that is an invitation in admittance into the very place where God dwells. Romans 12.1 then says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your act of spiritual worship. Everything that you do matters as long as you are presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice, this perpetual sacrifice unto the altar of God, to give honor and glory to God that this is why you are saved, this is what your body is for. To be given unto God, ultimately for His worship and for His glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Even the simplest things as eating and drinking. The glory of God. Even eating and drinking matters to God. Everything that you do, whether it's eating or drinking, fellowshipping with the saints matters to God. Providing a meal, something matters to God. 
praying for someone. If, any, if there's nothing that you can do for whatever reason, physically incapacitated, but all you can do is pray, it matters to God. As long as it's an act of spiritual worship unto the Lord. Whether you eat or drink or whether you pray, do it all to the glory of God. When other saints gather together on Sunday mornings, it matters a great deal to God. Whenever you encourage somebody, it matters a great deal to God. Your life matters today because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that you do matters to God. And if you are yet convinced that everything you do matters to God, listen to what Matthew 25, 31. This is so, <laughs> this is so good. Matthew 25, 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The Bible tells us that everything that you do matters. It matters a great deal to the Lord. Because when we glorify the Lord, do everything that we do, it brings glory to God when we serve one another, when we provide for one another, when we encourage one another, when we pray for one another, Jesus is saying, when you are doing it to one another, you are essentially doing it to me. This gives us sort of a bigger vision of life. Life as a Christian. Life as a person who has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that what we do for one another isn't just for the other person, that what I do for you isn't just for you. I'm actually also at the same time doing it to the Lord. Everything that we do matters to the Lord. And when we do these things to one another, we are essentially doing it to the Lord. And this has... Oh, the Bible tells us, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Why should we be fervent in spirit and not slothful in zeal? Because everything that we do matters, and what we do ultimately glorifies the Lord, and because we are doing it unto the Lord Jesus. Titus also tells us that God has redeemed a people for himself who are zealous for good works. Why should we be zealous for good works? Because every good thing that we do, we are ultimately doing it unto the Lord Jesus. And that's why it matters. That is why your life matters. Because you are ultimately serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, it's incredible, staggering 
implications for so many of the things that I don't even have time to cover this morning. I mean, work isn't just going to work anymore, is it? Taking care of children and changing dirty diapers isn't just that anymore, is it? Serving in sound, serving in nursery, those things are just not, it's not just serving anymore, but this is actually a service unto the Lord. We are giving glory to God when we do these things. Every day is not just a mundane, it's not just a day filled with routine, doing the same thing. No, this is a life that we are called to live unto the glory of God, and what we do matters, because the Lord takes notice. And when we serve others, Jesus says, you are serving me. And this is the kind of life that is lived in the fear of God. There's meaning, there's intrinsic worth, there's value, there's significance. Not because we have found it in ourselves, not because we have found it out there in the world, not because we have made it for ourselves, but because it begins with God and a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This should change everything that you do every single day. It all matters to the Lord. So I'll leave you with this. Know that every day is not just another day. As a child of the living God, every day is a day of purpose because your life does matter. And everything that you do does matter because you have a Heavenly Father who loves you and who cares for you. And as an earthly father cares about what their children do, what they do with their actions, what they do with their time, what they do with their energies, with their efforts, with their very lives, so also you have a heavenly father who cares for you and cares about what you do each and every day. And by the way, it also reminds us what we do even this very morning matters a great deal to the Lord. It is not just this blip in all of eternity. It's not just this insignificant thing that we do. No, it matters a great deal to the Lord. So it should matter to us also. Everything that we do matters because the Lord cares and He is the one who has given our lives meaning and purpose Let's pray. Lord, uh, God, we thank you for, for saving us. God, there's just so much to say about this salvation that you've given, uh, given to us in Jesus Christ. There's so much to be thankful for. God, but we just want to thank you specifically because you have given our lives purpose. We thank you, Lord, that our lives today matter. That even what we go on to do with the rest of our day matters, God. Lord, Help us to, to live in that reality. God, may this profoundly change 
how we view our lives, how we view our work, how we view service in the church. May this profoundly impact how we view the lives of others. God, perhaps this is what Moses meant when he says that to teach us to number our days and we grow a heart of wisdom. Our lives certainly are fleeting, but they are not meaningless. And to know that our life is a passing moment and yet has profound meaning because of Jesus Christ, we can have a heart of wisdom because we intend to live it under the expectations of our divine creator and our incredible Redeemer, Savior. May we grow a heart of wisdom that understands and knows that our redeemed lives matter and that everything that we do matter. So we thank you, Jesus, for giving us life, for giving us breath. We thank you for giving us new life and breath of the gospel of Christ, and we thank you for giving us lives that are meaningful and that are of substance and are of value. May we continue to do what you call us to do so that we may also go on to live forever with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.